They like to dream big in Nicaragua, so they're getting ready to take their place alongside their more popular neighbors in Central America. It's getting better set up for tourism. There's lots of little puddle hopper flights if you want to go right out of Managua. Coming up, reporter Peter Costantini brings us up to date on his latest trip to Nicaragua. Besides gaining status as a tourist and retirement destination, some business leaders there think they might even try to compete with the Panama Canal. Someday. And the authors of The Bonjour Effect clue us in on what you need to know when speaking French with the locals in Paris. Things that language classes don't always explain. You know, you go out wearing boxing gloves every day in Paris. Like, it's really, it's quite an art. But once you get used to it and you go out with the right frame of mind, it can be really fun. Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau share some keen insights into the French frame of mind. The thing is that the French are pessimistic because they're closet optimists. It's coming up too sweet on today's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the countries that freelance reporter Peter Costantini enjoys covering the most is Nicaragua. It has lots of spectacular scenery, and tourism is becoming more important to their economic growth. In his latest visit, Peter figured out how a proposal to let Chinese developers construct an alternative to the Panama Canal could turn into a real financial boondoggle. Coming up in a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Peter updates us on what's new in Nicaragua and why he enjoys returning there whenever he can. Even if you speak French fluently, there's something you might be getting wrong when you attempt to speak with the locals in France. We've heard before here on Travel with Rick Steves about the importance of greeting everyone with a friendly bonjour before you ask directions. But there's a whole other level of conversing that goes beyond the words that even a French-Canadian has to learn to fit in in France. Joining us now from Radio Canada Studios in Montreal are the husband-wife team behind the book The Bonjour Effect. They'll take your calls in a bit at 877-333-7425. Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau, bonjour. Thanks for having us. So the premise of your book is even if you were an A student here in the United States or Canada studying your perfect French, you go to France, you'll still have trouble communicating. How so? The thesis is it's not about the language, it's about the codes. People go to France, you know, we know a lot about France, we're very familiar with France, but we go thinking it's just sort of going to unfold itself to us, and um, often it doesn't. For instance, the book is called The Bonjour Effect, because the first thing that travelers stumble on is their unawareness of the importance of saying bonjour. You have to say it all the time. We say that if you say bonjour and you think you're saying it way too much, you're probably just getting it (laughs) just right. When you take the bus, you have to say it. When you... uh buy a newspaper at the newsstand or a magazine. It says that there's an inside and an outside, and you have to say bonjour so that you acknowledge that you enter their space. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's not really a word. It's a signal you send to tell them that you're ready to start communicating. And if you don't send yeah. the signal, they don't communicate. Ah. It actually won't even take your money. Oh, so it's like turn on the receiver, prepare for transmission. Exactly. And if you're getting on a bus... It means you're entering somebody's territory. Bonjour. I'm here. You have to yeah. say bonjour if you expect civility and good treatment. Oh, right. If you're in a store and you want something from, you want to be served, the person behind the counter will not do it until you say bonjour and you've begun the, the interaction. What if it's after dark or you're doing something at, at midnight? Oh, then you say bonsoir. Bonsoir. Um, Same thing. Yes. But bonui means goodbye, though. You don't say bonui. Yeah, that means good night. Yes. Good night, yeah. It's, it's, but but it's you wouldn't say the conversation's that. Conversation's over when you say conversation's bonui. Conversation's yes, over. Yes. <laughs> and if you know you're going to see them again, or likely, you say au revoir, which means next time I see you, I'll say you bonjour again. 
the French just seem to love this stuff, all the little fine points of their language, the, the nuances. Uh, you're both from Quebec, you speak French. Is, is it different, uh, the, the approach to the language between a French-Canadian and, and people in France? Yeah, the culture of language, the language is the same. The culture is different. Quebecers will be a bit less elitist. By and large, we're North Americans, so mm. we do not have the custom of saying bonjour all the time. Right. So um, the thing the French do, which is rattles me, even though I'm a French-speaking North American, as much, of course, as it would rattle anybody, who's, even if you don't speak French, is they correct all the time. It's very, very, this is another one of those codes that, that foreigners don't get. And the French are very comfortable correcting people. They grow up being corrected constantly in school. They, as a culture, are very afraid of blame. So they reach out, they correct. It's like acceptable public behavior for a stranger to correct your French. Because we always say uh, compliment in public and correct in private or something like that. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, you, you've hit the nail on, on the head. It's an issue of, and this is another thing we explain in the book, it's an issue of what's private and what's public. Yeah. And many things for the French that we assume mm -hmm. are things that you only do in private, like argue with your spouse at a dinner table in front of everybody else. These things are not private things for the French. Correcting is not private. You do see couples disagreeing publicly, which makes oh, me yeah. kind of cringe because couples in America can be at war, but when they're with their friends, it seems like everything's cool. Exactly. This is a really big cultural difference. Also, there are topics that you can't talk about that would be easy conversation starters in North America, like what do you do for your living mm -hmm. or even what's your name? And those things for the French are strictly private. You do not ask a stranger what they do for a living. But you've got all sorts of liberty to have more sexual in innuendo in your discussion, which is oh, kind yeah. of counterintuitive. They, 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 exactly. That's and the they, ultimate it's, it's in, in discretion, yeah. They will not talk about their own sex life, but a, a sexual, as you said, a sexual in innuendo, a joke, a remark, um, that is fine, and it's not perceived as sexist or a signal. People will laugh openly about it. And, so uh, even a man could make a sexual joke in front of a woman in a professional area or in a public area, which here would cause people to cringe and would not be considered acceptable. There, it would be a different sort of standard. Um, it's okay. Standard. We were on a bus on a rainy evening, and people were the bus driver was trying to get people to cram towards the back, you know, to make more room. And the bus driver actually said, you know, it's okay to touch each other as long as you don't have dirty thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'd hear that. I'd never hear that in a bus in America. I'd laugh if I did, but I would never And hear. everybody did laugh, and they sort of moved to the back. It sort of woke everybody up and got them out of their stupor. But that sort of stuff in France is fine. And is it equal between men and women, or is that just a, a, a privilege men have? No, no, no. It's definitely not. Uh, I've, I've, some of the, <laughs> the good ones came from women. No, no, no. They, they're, they're definitely not uh, It's pretty egalitarian. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's, it's interesting because... On the relationship between men and women, they project this idea of um, being very macho and, and all that. But at the same time, historically, French women have always had a, a strong place in society and mm -hmm. conversation. And it's, it's really, really ingrained in them. But there is this element of uh, la seduction. There, there's sort of a dance. Yep. There's flirting going on. Even though people are angling to go to bed with each other, there's still that sort of flirtatiousness. Oh, women do not expect you to regard them as transparent. They really want you to see them. And if you're complimenting them on their appearance and what they wear huh. or the way they arrange their hair is... It's all fair. ...is, is actually, actually good small talk. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau, and their new book is The Bonjour Effect. In your book, you talk that there's an approach to small talk. For us, small talk is polite, but they kind of get right beyond small talk. Quickly. 
and they rapidly want you to uh, produce something that will impress them or be so interesting. Get, in, get to the meat of things. Let's make a conversation yes. that is of, of meaningfulness. It's the reason why bonjour is actually not a good translation of hi, for example, because once you said bonjour to a person, the next time you see that person in the same day, you don't say bonjour again. You have to say something else. Ah, you've started. The, you that to, was the end of the small talk, the bonjour. Now let's get right yeah, to yeah. it. Exactly. It's exactly. a signal that, it, that it's over. Because you wrote in your book, they don't communicate, they converse. Is yes. that related exactly. to that? Exactly. And the point of conversation is never to express information. It's to converse and give out ideas and give your conversation partner something to respond to. And that can be an opinion or something provocative, like correcting somebody or contradicting somebody or stating something outrageous that they will respond oh, to. Yeah, the, it's, the, it's, the rules are completely different in French. It just spins the conversational carousel. Yep. Exactly. And if you go, if you're invited, we were invited. We, we tell the story in the Bonjour Effect about this party we went to one evening. It was like, kind of like a salon. We were invited to come and speak to people about French language in an intimate setting. And we sat there being polite and nodding all night. And then as an evening wore on and we didn't feel it was really getting off the ground. And then I remembered that the idea when you are invited to such a thing to converse with the French is you have to give them something to work with. You have to say something, even if it's a little bit over the top. <laughs> so as they were chatting about things going on in Paris and there was an Art Deco show. And so I sort of sat up and I said, you know, Art Deco has always seemed really fascist to me. <laughs> I'm saying this at a polite dinner table. Yeah. And they were so happy. Yes. And one of the ladies winked at me. He said, finally. And the gentleman called me charmant. <laughs> and off we went. And the conversation was going. I mean, you really have to be daring and say something outrageous sometimes. It's like a bunch um, of and kids. And they love it. It's not, it's exactly, it's a game. And that gave them something to play with. There's a bunch of kids in a court and there's no ball. And if you throw in something exactly. like that, there's a ball to play with now. And what, another interesting thing is that they will say no all the time. No. Uh, something they say easily, very quickly. Contrary, for example, to the British who never say no. They always say, uh, I, I hear you. That, that's ah, when they don't I agree with you. I understand what you're saying, yeah. The, the French will say no all the time. And it, it's not a refusal. It's actually a defensive position. So conversing a little bit with them just shows you that you don't judge them. And then they're very willing, and then they, they will be very helpful and even not let you go. But no is like a bargaining position. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a refusal. And that's very tough for foreigners to get. And, and even we had trouble with that. When we returned to France in 2013 to write the book, we got caught up all the time. We, we, just, we, 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 we just couldn't get over the no until, mm. you know, we remembered that really it's just an invitation to make a counteroffer. Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoît Nadeau are the authors of The Bonjour Effect, The Secret Codes of French Conversation Revealed. They've also written The Story of French and 60 Million Frenchmen Can't Be Wrong. Lynn joins us now on the Travel with Rick Steves listener line from Paris, France at 877-333-RICK. Lynn, thanks for the call. Hello, and after listening to this, I have to buy the book, and I'm living here. <laughs> I've come across the nose before, and um, you'll ask somebody, do you speak English? And I say it in French, and they say, very little. And then they speak the Queen's English so beautifully. And I finally said to a French friend, I, I don't understand. And they said, just like you did, they're beaten down in school so much and told that they're doing it wrong that they don't want to admit that they speak it so well. It doesn't come yep. naturally to say that. Huh, so you, you hit the nail on the head on that one. So, Lynn, you've been communicating in Paris. Uh, have you had any interesting uh, 
experience because of your struggles with the language? Well, I've had quite a number of embarrassing ones, but um, I went into a French cafe and I wanted a cup of coffee and I saw milk in the background that said UHT and I didn't want anything that had been zapped by x-rays. So I said to them in my best French, Je voudrais avoir du lait sans preservatif. And she, this is the first time somebody just couldn't contain themselves. She just started laughing in my face. I said, I would like milk without condoms. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you, you were asking for a prophylactic. <laughs> you gave the French something to talk about there. Uh, I don't think she ever forgot me. It's it's called faux friends. That's what I learned afterwards. And then mm-hmm. you're, you're struggling. You're trying to use a word that you're trying. You don't know the word, so you pull out English. And these words, preservative, is not the same thing. It's conservative. And then mm-hmm. I would have been understood. But I I went for that faux friend and preservative. I knew what it meant in English. Doesn't mean the same thing in French. That's a good lesson. You'll always remember how to say condoms now. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, thanks for your call, and that's a great real-life example of how we can connect and have some fun and, and learn at the same time. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Just ahead, more of your calls and the tips and insights that Julie and Jean Benoit uncovered when they lived in France. They'll tell us why the beguiling rituals of French conversation reflect the very heart of the national culture. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It has great beaches and scenery, an off-the-beaten-track vibe, a stable multi-party democracy, and is one of the up-and-coming destinations in Latin America. Coming up in a moment, an American reporter who specializes in Nicaragua shares his latest impressions from Central America's emerging destination. Right now, Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow are taking your calls at 877-333-7425 as we learn how to go beyond the words to understand the etiquette and figure out how to be taken seriously as a foreigner in France. They've written a number of books about French language and culture, and their newest is called The Bonjour Effect, The Secret Codes of French Conversation Revealed. Arthur's on the phone from Bloomington, Indiana. Arthur, thanks for your call. Hi, John, and hi, Julie. I had this experience about, um, I don't really speak French, and what I do when I visit Paris or, or even smaller places like uh, in, in Love Valley, I always start by uh, making a point of saying in French that I do not know how to speak French and then kind of saying it apologetically and waiting for an acknowledgement from whoever I'm talking to and then to code switching back to English right away. And usually I feel very um, appreciative that even though some of them uh, do not speak English very well, uh, they tried to converse back with me again and they ended up, always ended up with me saying we oui or no or and some sort of hand signal and just to make sure that the conversation goes on. Are we saying that even uh, if you don't speak French, you ask, do you speak English? And if they say no, you go with a little bit of French and then it reverts to English because regardless of what they say, they speak more English than you speak French? Yes, some sort of that combination, yes. Does does that make sense in your experience, Julie and and Jean Benoit? I think it's a good style to ask, parlez-vous anglais. Absolutely. But I would just say to our, our listener, he's, he, he's lucky to be living or traveling in France right now. The first time we lived in France, the attitude towards English and towards Americans was not as favorable. And one of the big changes we noticed going back in 2013, after 13 years, was that the French are quite open to English, quite interested in English. It's an important language in the European Union. 
and they're quite keen on learning it. So the philosophy has changed, and the philosophy about us as Quebecers, with our quite strong Quebec accent, has also changed. We found the French more curious, more open-minded, very little anti-American sentiment in France right now, which was nice, and, I'm, and that's probably helping. But indeed, it is a good idea to explain ahead, as long as you start with bonjour. <laughs> yeah, um, Americans, we grew up thinking, uh, oh, the mean Parisians and the, uh, you know, the anti-American sentiment in, in Paris, in France, but that's quite dated now. When you think way back, where did that come from? Because it was there before. And then what happened? Why, why did it change? I think that it's quite old, uh, that feeling. Uh, it has a history of having varied in intensity with generations. But uh, at present, I would say that the main cause is that, well, it's two causes, really. I think the French are, are realizing now the consequence of the fact that France is not the center of its own world. You know, that the post-colonial thinking is, has, has really sunk in, and they, they realize that they are part of a larger world, even mm -hmm. in French. And it's very important because their first contact with America is generally through Montreal or Quebec City. Mm -hmm. And so they, they have a completely, they've, they've reversed their, their worldview, in fact, in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, not just about Americans, but about their own position and their own civilization, their own culture, their, their own French culture. Well, in other words, Francophone. are they getting comfortable or real with the fact that they no longer are the cultural leaders of the world, even though they're proud oh, of their yeah, culture? Yeah, yeah, for sure. To the extent that. that before we wrote The Bonjour Effect, we made a radio show in Paris at France Culture, which is sort of the summit of, uh, it's a bit like... The BBC. NB, right. and NPR, mm -hmm. the BBC. Right. And we got on the radio and gave a two-hour show about the French language to the French with our Quebecois accents and my additional English accent. Can you imagine? Uh. And 15 years ago, that never would yeah. have happened. And we said, I went uh. in and apologized yeah. a bit. I said, are you sure you, you, know, you feel comfortable with that? And they loved the accents, oh. and they were all for it. So things have really changed. Well, I remember a time when a business that wanted to use an international or an American word in their name would have a penalty or, or some sort of a fine or even would not be allowed to do it because they were protecting against the influx of American words into their language. Have they lightened up on that also? Can you say the internet or, or whatever? Can you call your company a, an English catchphrase now without any flack from the government? They actually have had uh, laws to protect French in France for 20 years. Mm -hmm. These laws are actually imitating Quebec laws. But the French never took them seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, neither in the population or, or in the application of what the authorities could do. They're so Anglophile right now in France, most notably in Paris, that it's, it's actually close to being ridiculous. Like it looks a bit like the cargo cult. It's as if, you know, these people in the uh, Pacific Islands that built bamboo antennas to call the Americans, <laughs> you know, for, for prosperity, you know. Uh -huh. So they use English right now as a kind of... Way to call out. As a little fetish of prosperity that they will shake and that money will come. It's very weird. <laughs> we found uh, it weird. What would be an so, example of that, Jean Benoit? Oh, uh, they have perfectly good French terms for whatever. And they will start using English terms... Just because it sounds more modern and more it. It wasn't just Paris. We were in a town in the, in the Land in the south near the Spanish border, which produces, has a big lumber industry. And their store was called All Wood. Mm. And we were stunned. We thought it was a Paris phenomenon. It was called All Wood. And we were, we were amazed. So but that's you see catchy English, now. During, during, uh, it's catchy, yeah. I remember there was a time 
when American, you know, California would sell cars and, and sell fashion and, and there were American-style jingles. And then during the Gulf Wars and during the Bush uh, eight years, they were actually recognizing that American jingles and American uh, culture in ads was the opposite. It was turning away business. And they, they would hire marketing people to comb all those American references out of their marketing. Now you're saying it's coming back into their marketing, into their culture. Oh, yeah. It is, but the European Union is also having a big effect, the economic union, because a lot of the um, publicity campaigns from the companies that are working in Europe are developed in English. Uh-huh. But there's still this feeling in, in France, isn't there, of rampant capitalism being pushed by America and a puritanical culture being pushed no. by America no, and linguistic so imperialism. None of that anymore, huh? Because that was a big thing before. The, the notion of puritanism, maybe, but... Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, there the anti-business sentiment, when it's expressed, is actually expressed against Europe ah. rather than against the United States. In and fact, it, Europe has, in segments of popu- the population in France right now, Europe is replacing the United States. So as that's the, the new scapegoat. Yeah, the yeah. new his France needs a scapegoat. Yeah, there used to be this word called Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon uh-huh. it was very common the first time we lived in France, 1999, and it was just sort of a catch-all to wrap up the English-speaking thread. And it was, you know, it was pejorative. Uh-huh. And that word's disappeared. That's a remarkable change in just a decade or two. It is a remarkable change. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nedeau. Their book is called The Bonjour Effect, The Secret Codes of French Conversation Revealed. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sarah's calling in from Portland in Oregon. Sarah, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. And hi, Julie and Jean-Benoit. I have to say... Hello, Sarah. I've had your previous book, 60 Million Frenchmen Can't Be Wrong, on my shelf since college, where I was a French major, um, mm. and so most of my French experiences came from when I studied abroad in college, and I love this notion of Americans being kind of disquieted by the French embracing provocation and argumentation in public, and I wanted mm-hmm. to share a particularly validating experience of mine that I had there at the end of my own sojourn abroad. Uh, It was Mm -hmm. in Montpellier in the south of France, and I had been abroad for an entire semester, as you can imagine, and back then the weight limit was still 75 pounds for luggage, not 50 pounds or 40 pounds. I had like (laughs) three suitcases and was lugging them through the Paris metro all the way out to Charles de Gaulle Airport, and I hadn't even purchased the right ticket because of the concentric circles of how far you can go on the train. So I was having all of these struggles, which frankly I should have known better by that time having been there for like five months. And (laughs) it was very busy. It was rush hour. And I was trying to cram myself and all of my luggage on a very packed train going far outside of the city. And this Frenchman started yelling at me, kind of berating me for taking up so much space and knocking people about in the train, and I just kind of stared at him in French. I said, hey, buddy, you know, I have to get on the train, too. Everyone has to get on the train, and I have stuff. I've studied abroad for an entire semester in Montpellier, so just get out of my way and let me on. And he kind of stopped, and his tone changed completely, and he was like, oh, okay, and he kind of just, like, shuffled back, and I was able to get all of my stuff on the train. But it was a very... It was kind of a victorious experience for me because of that kind of parrying <laughs> you have with the yeah. French. You're constantly negotiating and, and arguing with people to get what you need. You won his respect, and that's uh, what I guess 
Julian Zanbanal were mentioning, and that's a very good example, isn't it? You just stood up and you respectfully told him what, what your case was, and he goes, oh, you got your act together. Talking really means something. Like, you don't get anything in France by staring at people. Hmm. Talking really means something, and they do respect that. Um, you did well. <laughs> so that's what you talk about in your book also. You know, like, you actually sort of allude to the fact that disagreeing is a good thing. Consensus is kind of boring. Let's let's address this problem exactly. and let's let's get to the bottom of it. Actually, it's even simpler than that. When you do not want to speak to a French person in any kind of situation, you simply do not talk to them. They're very at ease with you being next to them and not talking. <laughs> but if you want to talk to them, you better have something to say. Exactly. But as a foreigner, you have you have a, an extra leeway that they do not have between themselves. Because in France, they will never say that they don't know. They're afraid of ridicule. So it's one of the reasons why when you ask something and they don't know, they'll say no or they'll say it doesn't exist. Oh. But as a foreigner, you're allowed to say, I do not understand. I, mm. I, I do not know. And then they're very willing. You explain your problem. You say, excuse me, I, je, je ne comprends pas. <laughs> I do not know this. And if they have the time, they actually will, because you, they know you do not belong, they're perfectly willing to explain. Jean Benoit, if you're talking with somebody like this and they don't want to say, I don't know, can that mess you up if you're asking for simple directions? Yeah, it can really mess you up. <laughs> they don't it, say, it I don't can really know. mess you up. Yeah, they won't say, I don't know. And they'll probably, they may tell you something that's, that's well, yeah. Oh, it can, it can, civil servants have sent us to the, the wrong service just because they would not say they didn't know. And, and then the, and the blamed only us way, for not asking. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. yes exactly. So <laughs> now we, now after a while we knew. When they seem too certain, and it's, the answer came too quickly for something that right. was way too specific, yeah. we just keep talking with them. That, and you've got to learn and this. And then this they, is... they, realize, they realize that they're doing something silly, and then they ask us. It's a real us a art. You know, you go out wearing boxing gloves every day <laughs> in Paris. Like, it's, really, it's quite an art. But once you get used to it, and you go out with the right frame of mind... It's fun. Um, it can be really fun. People aren't that sensitive. No, and that's what Americans got to realize is, you know, get over it. Okay, you had a uh, little altercation here. Get over it. You're communicating. I like that's the subtitle of your book, The Secret Codes of French Conversation Revealed. Hey, Sarah, thanks for your call. Thanks so much. Yeah. Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau are the husband and wife team behind The Bonjour Effect, a book that helps outsiders better understand the unwritten rules of French culture and conversation. We provide you with a link to their website, plus a program extra in which a caller from Florida asks about the unique ways Quebecers curse. Look for this week's show on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Julie and Jean-Benoit, we're talking about communicating, and we travelers sometimes are a little bit reading into things, and it might put us on guard or put us off. There's this whole issue of smiling. Uh, my sense is <laughs> when you smile, they look at you like you're just the village idiot. What mm -hmm. about smiling? You are the village idiot when you smile. You're absolutely right. Because I smile. Like it just, it's just like that's what you're supposed to do. But I, I get yeah. the sense in France that's not going to earn you anything. <laughs> no, no. No, they, they think you, I mean, the French tend to take a negative stance to many things. It's different than just saying no. They take a negative stance because it seems smarter to them. Cooler, if you will. Cooler. And when you smile and you're too agreeable, they think either you're stupid or you're trying to hide something. Ah. Yeah, they're so afraid of that. It's not a good approach. Not when you don't know people and aren't oh, laughing and having a fun. A brief engaging smile, but, but the Colgate smile is, is, is no. tricky. And being negative is almost, it accomplishes the opposite. Being negative probably means you're more with it and you've got reason to have a strong opinion. That's what they think. And you got to remember, you know, 80 million people visit France every year and in Paris. I don't know what percentage passed through Paris, but a big chunk of them. 
Parisians are faced with smiling tourists all year uh-huh. round. Yeah. And they just, you know, we live there. We know we live near Montmartre. And it does kind of grind on you. It does kind of get on your nerves after a while. Um, <laughs> if, if you try to stroke the ego of a, of a French person, will they think you're just being insincere or is that a nice way to make them feel good about being in a conversation with you? Hmm, that's an interesting question. It's a good point. I, 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 I they, they love their country. They, they, they the French are, are in many ways the, the, the Americans of Europe in the sense that they're an old republic, and they, they really have a strong sense of who they are, and, mm-hmm. and uh, if you compliment them uh, sincerely, they will feel it. Mm. Um, but, but, but they're so down on their country exactly. right now that. <laughs> that uh, sometimes they have trouble even believing that they're doing anything right. We mm. had an interview with a fellow at the at the Hotel de Ville at the town hall in Paris. We we were complimenting him on his on the the food in the cafeterias and in, in our kids were at school and the food was just great and he was he was very interested in talking about the food and how it was all purchased locally and it was all organic and the and then at one point in the conversation, he said to us, but, but you can't believe anything works properly in France. <laughs> the thing is that the French are, are, are pessimistic because they're closet optimists. They, the surveys show that 80% of them are actually optimists personally about themselves. But when they think about society and reflect in public or talk in public, they will always express pessimism. And it's because optimism is something that is actually for your private garden. And it's it's uh, it's something that you reserve for people you know well, and not anyone, particularly because you might be regarded as uh, an imbecile, uh, and, and if you're too optimistic, and and they're really afraid of that, and that that opposition between private and public, what's allowed in private, what's allowed in public, is 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 interesting because, for example, the French will never talk openly with a stranger about their family, their job. Uh, money, although when you know them, they talk about that all the time. Mm. But the thing is that if you start striking a conversation with people and it goes very well, if they start talking about their family, if they start talking about their job or money, they're actually sending you signal that they want their relationship, that you're building a relationship, ah. that you they want to go beyond uh, let's be interesting. Fascinating. Uh, that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's codified. It's codified in certain ways. For example, humor. The French never do humor with people they don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will do wit. They'll do uh, esprit. They'll do uh, sarcasm. But they certainly will not turn the ridicule on them. Self-deprecating humor. So, no. It doesn't happen. No, no. Happen. But, <laughs> Only in private. But if you do it in private, it's a signal that they, if they do it with you, it's a signal that they want to be intimate. I have a sense that the um, determined, thoughtful, American traveler going to France is going to make mistakes. They're going to, they're going to mess up, but they need to be Absolutely. resilient. They need to be optimistic mm-hmm. and curious and respectful and not take things personally. And nope. all in all, when they leave France, they'll find uh, the social potential and the fun of getting intimate with the culture is worth all the, all the pitfalls and potholes and bumps in the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoît Nadeau, thank you for sharing with us and, and writing The Bonjour Effect. It's going to help a lot of people enjoy a lot of culture in a beautiful country of France. Thanks so much. Thanks. Statistics rank it as the second poorest country in the Americas, after Haiti. 
In just a minute, we'll find out why tourism is helping turn things around in Nicaragua. Reporter Peter Costantini has returned from a fact-finding visit and tells us why what he learned about plans to build a shipping canal across the country made front-page news in Nicaragua. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. When you consider its great surfing beaches, jungles, and the volcanoes you can explore, plus low prices and less crime than most other Latin American countries, then it's no wonder that Nicaragua is starting to emerge as a destination for ecotourism and agritourism. In fact, AARP includes it among its best places for Americans to retire. Reporter Peter Costantini has been hearing about plans to build a new shipping canal across Nicaragua. So a few months ago, he flew down from his home base in Seattle to investigate. Peter's article about the economic realities of the project made the front page of one of Managua's major newspapers. He's back home now and joins us for a look at what he's learned about Nicaragua and why he enjoys going back there whenever he can. Peter, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick. Let's talk just about Nicaragua as a travel destination. What characterizes the land? Okay, volcanoes, jungle, gorgeous beaches. It is a magnificent country as a physical place. And I love the culture very much, too. There's a saying, Ruben Darío was the, one of the most famous Latin American poets a hundred years ago. He said, Si la patria es pequeña, uno grande la sueña, which means... If the country is little, you have to dream a big one. And Nicaraguans consider themselves a nation of poets. You find I met a couple of people who were really very good writers when I read their stuff. That's a very endearing thing. They have some wonderful music and musicians, wonderful artists. Do they have ecotourism like you'd find in Costa Rica? Because it's yes. a big part of Costa Rica's tourism. Yes. Nicaragua is a great place for people who have enjoyed Costa Rica. And Costa Rica has done a wonderful job, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Nicaragua is still rougher around the edges, so you can have experiences, if you're a little bit adventurous, that, you know, maybe would be more homogenized. You wrote about that in your article, Volcano Boarding. Yes. Volcano Boarding is. (laughs) You know, I never got a chance to actually see it, but they say there's one of the volcanoes, maybe more than one, that are like cinder cones, you know, so it's just a steep slope of black, uh, it's kind of like St. Helens Pomace. And apparently you put on protective clothing and it's some kind of board or sled that you slide down (laughs) at a high speed. For me, that would be a spectator sport. Yes, for me also. What about baseball? The Nicaraguans uh, just have this amazing love of baseball. Yes. Uh, Did you have an experience in any villages or something? Just I I had a wonderful experience. That's the biggest sport in Nicaragua ever since the Marines were there and maybe before. I was out driving around. I was actually looking in areas where the canal would go through for things. It was Sunday afternoon after Mass, and I noticed that there were baseball games going on in a bunch of small towns. And I thought, you know, this is like Field of Dreams. And so I stopped at one of them, and there was a guy wearing a Mariner's uh, cap. And so I started a conversation with him. And uh, he, he knew all about the Mariners. A lot of Nicaraguans have been to the States and follow American baseball. And you're from Seattle. So I'm the, from Seattle, so they, so they knew uh, my home. into the Mariners. But just, just this yeah. field of dreams kind of joy of baseball. The stadiums were, there were like cow pastures up beyond there. there were, the one I went to, there was not a fence. So I guess to hit a home run, you had to really hit it hard. Get it over the cows. Run, run fast. But it was great. You know, and they were, they were good players. They were like high school or maybe college age. And, you know, they definitely played the game well. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined today by journalist Peter Costantini, and we're talking about Nicaragua, 
Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Carol's on the phone from Old Hickory in Tennessee. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, I'm thinking about retiring soon, and um, I'd like to know if Nicaragua is a good place, a good option for me to consider to retire, and is it safe? Yes, I would say I think it's quite safe for retirees, and I've heard positive things about that. I don't have any firsthand experience. I have friends who are Nicaraguan who have been in the States and gone back to retire there, which is a little different. But there are areas, especially on the southern part of the Pacific coast, just north of Costa Rica or west of Costa Rica, really, there's a community called San Juan del Sur where there there's a lot of foreigners. There's certain areas where there's big expat communities and a lot of people have bought summer houses and I believe there's a fair number of retirees. I I can't tell you on the level of figures, but I think you're right in the middle of a lot of beautiful places. And Nicaragua, I, I really enjoy it myself. I love being there. Carol, I think you'd be wise to take this as an excuse to make a little trip and uh, visit several countries down there because Costa Rica is probably a little more comfortable and has maybe a bigger expat community. Nicaragua has a special lovability, but it's a more rough-edged and 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 rough-and-tumble community, I would say. There's a lot of expats in Panama City, I know, and uh, we've talked to people uh, on this show that have written books about uh, retiring in various countries in Latin America. So there's a lot of information out there, but I think it would be fun for you to go down there and just kind of uh, check in with each country and just see what what, uh, strikes you. I've been to most of the countries, and and most of the countries in South America, too. Uh And um, Nicaragua just uh, looked curious to me, and I was looking for a, a medium-sized city by an ocean where I could perhaps get some part-time work uh, in ESL or at the university level, and I was thinking that Nicaragua is mm-hmm. blossoming, and that might be an opportunity for me to blossom with it. In terms of places with universities or educationally oriented towns, Leon is one of the larger cities, but it's not very big, and it's colonial, it's really pretty, and it's not far from the ocean. And also Granada those are the two old capitals of Nicaragua. Granada is the delightful it's beautiful town. Beautiful. I mean, every colonial. it seems like every town in Latin America has a, a Granada. Mm-hmm. I was just in Cuba, and Trinidad is like that, and uh, it's just really exciting to to see the big capital. But make a point to get out and see the the colonial, charming town. I will do that, and if you have any recommendations, I'm I'm certainly open for them. All right, Carol. Good luck. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Costantini about Nicaragua. And, Peter, the big buzz lately in Nicaragua is this canal project, what's called the Great Interoceanic Canal of Nicaragua, 173 miles across from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Is, is there actually a possibility of something competing with the Panama Canal? It's not looking good for it, but I should back up and say that Nicaragua has long seen itself as the rightful place for a canal across the isthmus because going back as far as the 1850s, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Commodore Vanderbilt, set up a transit system where he'd take people by clipper ship to the east coast of Nicaragua, take them up the river, across the lake, and there was 12 miles by stagecoach to the Pacific, and then take them on to San Francisco or elsewhere. So you could do that sort of um, porterage. You could porterage across the continent. (laughs) Kind of like that. Yeah, it was a successful business. And Nicaragua gave him a concession to build a canal, which he never exercised. But before the Panama Canal was built... Nicaragua was the most likely place the United States was looking primarily at Nicaragua. 
But lobbyists from Panama and the U.S. Congress managed to convince Congress that Nicaragua was dangerous because of all the volcanoes. It had found a postage stamp that showed a volcano erupting from Nicaragua and many other uh, devious things, and they won Panama. So let me get this straight. This is back in the days of Teddy Roosevelt. And exactly. I, I understand if you were to build this canal across Nicaragua, now it cost about $100 billion. So take a, the equivalent 100 years ago. That's a lot of a lot of investment, a lot of money, a lot of work, mm-hmm. and the momentum was in the interest of Nicaragua, not because it was the shortest part of the isthmus, but because there was a big lake that made it less of a dig. Exactly, and a river. And back in the days of clipper ships, the river and the lake were quite navigable. Unfortunately, the river's not very deep. I've been down it, and in the dry season, you have to get out of the, these little, you know, their little long dugout canoes and push. So did the, so. the Panama Canal actually make more sense, or was it a con job by all the lobbyists? I think it did make more sense, probably. Yeah. Although, yeah. I, I don't know. At that point, you know, you'd have to know the size of ships. But it kind of, Panama is so much shorter. Panama is about 50 miles, and Nicaragua is about a... 173, as you said. So, yeah, it's really hard to beat that. And now... And I understand there was a, farmers were demonstrating against the whole idea in Nicaragua. Yes, one of the... I went down to, like, to cover the debate nationally, and there's a large movement in the countryside in the areas where the canal would go through, led largely by campesinos, which is the Spanish term for... It's both small farmer, farm worker, people who live in the country. So these are people who mm-hmm. who came to the demonstration wearing rubber boots and carrying machetes and holsters by their sides, which is not... And what was their uh, complaint? What was their rationale? The complaint for was freedom? that the government was going to take their land to build a canal. And the government made a terrible concession with a Chinese entrepreneur, a concession so bad that a commentator in The Economist magazine, which is a fairly conservative magazine in Britain, said it was neo-colonial. And was in, in other words, China was going to buy up a swath of Nicaragua. Large, and it was so badly written that not only in the area of the canal, the Chinese firm could say any part of Nicaragua was land that was useful because there were several other projects connected. Yeah. There were like airports, uh, wow. free trade zones. It's horrible, and it's like a bunch of lawyers running around the countryside now. There's, there are nationally environmental groups, mm-hmm. um, legal service sorts of groups, and scientists who are working with the peasant groups. But mm-hmm. going to this demonstration, peasants can quote chapter and verse from Law 840 and Law 800, oh. which are the laws. And in a way, it's a tribute to the Sandinistas, because the original Sandinistas, before the party was taken apart were the ones who told people, you don't have to stand for dictatorship. You you don't, you don't can fight back. Mucho and gusto, so, Daniel. <laughs> yes. That's the thing about that spirit of the Nicaraguan people. They just yes. stick up for their rights. I now, think I think the rationale for this canal might have been that the Panama Canal couldn't handle the big shipping. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given all these complexities and the fact that just recently, Panama Canal has been renovated and now can accommodate much bigger ships, wouldn't you predict that? This is just not going to happen. It certainly looks that way. I talk to a lot of people in the international shipping and port and infrastructure business, and they were quite uniform in saying, no, this doesn't make sense just in terms of the Chinese economy, in terms of shipping routes in the world, that it's just, and the size of ships people are using. So it doesn't seem like it could happen. Another thing that makes it less likely to happen is that Panama has already started talking to the biggest Chinese port and infrastructure firm, China Harbor Engineering Corporation, which is an enormous company that has done this work all over the world, and they've come up with a plan to expand the Panama Canal yet further if there's demand. But Panama doesn't see that demand happening for some time. 
Well, it'll be interesting to follow that, and uh, it is a, a huge decision for Nicaragua one way or another. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by journalist Peter Costantini, who has a long interest in Nicaragua. When you go to Nicaragua, tell me about just the basic decision. I mean, of course, you fly into Managua, but it's mm-hmm. important to get out of Managua. What's Managua like, and, and what, what lies outside of the capital city? Well, Managua is a big, bustling city, and it's, it's very hot and humid. It's in the valley of a lake. It was destroyed by an earthquake in 1972, so it's very unusual. The middle of the city, there's one skyscraper. It's a two-story city, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. One skyscraper in the middle of about 20 stories. You know, it's hardly a skyscraper. And very spread out. There's much more now. There's like nice coffee shops and nice restaurants. But it's still two stories tall. Yeah, they haven't, I mean, along some of the main avenues. And it's just basically a two-story city. Hardly an elevator in the city of a million people. Very very few, yeah. There's new new hotels, there's new office buildings. So what's the basic nitty-gritty? Do you need a visa to go there? Uh, No, you can just fly in and out with a passport. There's plenty of service, um, uh, mostly, I think, through Houston and probably through Miami. People speak English? A lot more people speak English now. Spanish is helpful, a little oh, bit yeah, of Spanish, but lots of people speak English, yeah, uh, and lots of people want to try English. So it's getting better set up for tourism. There's lots of little puddle hopper flights. If you want to go right out of Managua to one of the places along either coast, there's plenty of uh, small airline flights to both coasts and to the islands in the Caribbean, the Corn Islands, which are beautiful white sand beaches. So you could, you know, of course, Managua is just your urban example of, of this country, but the charm of the country is probably in the smaller towns. Or Are there any sort of jet-in little enclaves that are just like paradise? I don't know if you can jet-in, but San Juan del Sur. Not jet, but, uh, but p- yeah, paddle-in pad- or something. Paddle-in, <laughs> yeah, actually, kayak might work. San Juan del Sur, on the southern part of the eastern part of the Pacific coast near Costa Rica, is a very pretty beach town. It's classic. A lot of surfers. Uh-huh. There's great, great breaks on some of the beaches. Hmm. Um, you can go. Uh, Corn Islands, in, I mentioned in the Caribbean, are are lovely. Granada and León, the two colonial cities we were mm. talking about before, are really nice. Yeah. They're very close to Managua. You can get mm-hmm. there by rental cars are cheap, and the roads are actually quite good. Oh, okay, so you could, you could pick a car up. At the, you could fly in, do what you want to do in Managua, pick a car at the airport, and drive right into the countryside. Yeah, yeah. and I found that driving, I, mm-hmm. I drove a couple of long trips, mm-hmm. and it's really not bad. I mean, there are, of course, there are very bad roads when you get far enough out. But what about health, food, drink, water, hotels? You can drink the water in, in Managua. There are hospitals in healthcare. I once, mm-hmm. a, a long time ago, I had to go for a, a minor thing to a hospital, mm-hmm. and they were they were mm-hmm. competent. What would be the the classic dish in Nicaragua? Uh, rice and beans. You got it. But and co- tomorrow it's beans and rice. You got it. It's gallo pinto. It's a little different than in Mexico because they're cooked together. Gallo pinto means spotted rooster. So there's like little spots of beans, and uh-huh. the rice is is darker colored. Uh-huh. I wanted to mention one other thing about Managua. You know, most people don't love Managua, but it's got some really beautiful, the lakefront they've fixed up, and it's very nice promenades along the lake. And the central parts of town, the the museums and the old ruined mm-hmm. cathedral are really worth seeing. There's a I lot felt, of I got to say, I felt, I was there three or four years ago, and I felt uncomfortable walking through the barrios. And people at the hotel said, you really should take a taxi from your hotel to the center or out to the, you know, concert hall or whatever. It depends. Uh, the the barrio's nearest into that. I walked around quite a bit, uh-huh. and I, it was, I didn't feel threatened. There are some other ones not that far away. I think it's like there's pockets of places where there's been... Right. So you should be, you should be, um, you should. use your common sense. Yeah, way. use your common but sense. But you get into the countryside, go to Granada, you just feel like you're in, you're oh, in yeah. Spain. Oh, yeah. And most of the countryside, I think, is very friendly. I mean, yeah. there's... 
I think people are proud of the lifestyle. That was one interesting thing from going to a demonstration of 20,000 campesinos. They're not apologetic. We're not, oh, we poor people in the countryside. We are campesinos. We raise cattle. We export good beef. We are tough. They love their lifestyle. I love and, that. And, and that, it's a very I felt positive that in thing. my time in Nicaragua. And we'd yeah. stumble into little communities, and they're industrious. I came into one community up in the mountains, and we stumbled onto a, a group of people that were having a fundraiser for their radio station. And, and we're on public radio right now. And this was your little pledge drive in a village in Nicaragua in the mountains. And it was Radio Victoria or something like this. And, and they were trying to raise enough money to buy a new uh, microphone. And it was just this community spirit coming together so that they could run their town and connect with the rest of their, their society. I think that exists a lot. It's a beautiful uh, thing. Still, yeah, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful a... thing. We have more with Peter Costantini about the history and politics of Nicaragua in a Travel with Rick Steves program extra. You'll find it, plus links to his news articles, with the podcast of this week's show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Peter, let's just wrap it up with just a beautiful moment. Take me somewhere just beautiful in Nicaragua, and uh, where would we be, and, and just what would we what would we enjoy to appreciate the wonder of this little country? One of my favorite places is an island called Ometepe in the middle of the big lake, Lake Cosibolca, and it's got two volcanoes, and I went there nine years ago with a good friend, and we climbed one of the volcanoes. Uh, the other one is active, but there's one that has... It's just jungle and howler monkeys, and you get up to the top, and there's a lake, a small lake, and we went swimming in the lake, a in lake? the crater at a the lake top of the volcano. in the island, in the lake? Yeah, it's at the, t- the crater at the top of the volcano. It's, you know, three or wow, 4,000 feet. Unique. had a lake. It, it was wonderful. Beautiful. And you're going through the jungle, and Ometepe, in many ways, it's got, it is lovely. It has a lot of small resorts, uh, nice beaches. You're from Seattle, and I know that there's a Bainbridge Island, Ometepe Sister Island Association. Are you part of that? Uh, I'm not, but I know the folks who do it. It's a wonderful yeah. thing. Ever since the 80s, the high school kids from Bainbridge Island, which is in Puget Sound, have had exchanges with the high school kids from Ometepe Island, and they go back and forth. And it's one of those things, you know, it was started, this was supposedly a big enemy of the United States, but it's kept going as a way to get to people know... To people. Yeah, culture to it's, culture. it's wonderful. You We're know, I, together, north and south of the border. Those people deserve, on both sides, deserve mm-hmm. a lot of credit for keeping that kind of program going for 30-some-odd years. And when you sit there under your thatched little cabana, can you still have a Managua Libre? Oh, <laughs> you certainly can. Do they still call it that? A Cuba uh, Libre? A uh, Roman Nica, Nica, Nica Libre. Or Nica, Nica Libre. Yeah, and the rum is really good. Flor de Caña. All right. Peter Costantini, thanks so much for a little update on Nicaragua. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by me, Tim Tatton, with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to Radio Canada in Montreal for their help this week. You can hear more from our guests about the political history of Nicaragua and the unusual curse words people might utter in Quebec. Listen in from the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through France and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Paris and the south of France, Paris and the heart of France, Paris by itself, 
and the villages and vineyards of eastern France. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.